Consider the orangutan. Found in children's science books and across popular culture, the orangutan is known around the world for its electric orange hair and big, expressive eyes. But this familiar face is under attack, along with hundreds of other forest species and nearby communities. The culprit? Millions of acres burned at the hands of palm oil production. Palm oil trade dictates more than 67 million acres of land, which translates to thousands of miles of scorched earth. And palm oil, the byproduct of this trade, is found in virtually every beauty product and food we consume, from ice cream and frozen pizzas to lipstick and shampoo. You're listening to In Good Hands, a show about the businesses and founders solving our climate crisis. I'm your host, Peter Levin, and today, how C16 Biosciences and its founder, Shara Tiku, have cracked the code on palm oil, making a synthetic alternative that's building a better future for all of us. Shara, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Peter. So let's jump right in. What is C16 Biosciences and what problem are you solving? So C16 uses biotechnology to make sustainable alternatives to palm oil. So palm oil is the most popular vegetable oil in the world. It's a $60 billion industry, and the product is found in 50% of products on supermarket shelves. So it's in everything from soaps and shampoos to lipstick and Nutella, and it's even used as an input for biofuels. So it's, it's a vegetable oil, and then it's sort of fractioned into these other products, which mostly serve functional purposes across all of these different product verticals. It's a great product, but the problem with it is the way that it's produced. So the tree from which the oil comes can only grow within about 5 to 10 degrees of the equator. So if you're looking to grow more palm oil, if you look around the equator, what you mostly find is tropical rainforest. And so in order to meet demand for this product, growers have been for the last few decades slashing and burning tropical rainforest burning the trees, burning the carbon-rich peatland, so it's a double whammy for CO2 emissions, killing either directly or indirectly any of the wildlife that live there, and then shooing off any people who might have claim to that land as well, um, all to make a vegetable oil. You know, I think with the world population growing to 10 billion people by 2050 and the fact that we don't have enough arable land to even feed that many people, the fact that we're clearing some of our most um, biodiverse valuable arable land to make a vegetable oil is something that just really doesn't make sense to us. And so we solve this problem basically by brewing palm oil the way that you brew beer. So we use yeast, we ferment yeast in big steel tanks, uh, and we make an oil that way. How did you stumble upon the problem set? I mean, what's the story that predates C16? And then what inspired the Eureka moment? A lot of sort of science-based businesses start with the technology. Maybe someone's in a PhD program, the focus of their dissertation is super interesting, and they have this hammer and they sort of go out looking for the nail. When we started the company, it was the inverse. We really started with the problem. And actually, my, my co-founders and I weren't looking really to start a, a company. The three of us met at the MIT Media Lab, which is sort of a notorious place for people from interdisciplinary backgrounds coming together working to work on wacky science. And the three of us all ended up 
there because we were sort of interested in different different things. And a few months prior, so this was sort of late 2016, a few months prior, Impossible Foods had just launched their first product in David Chang restaurants here in New York. We were really excited about this. And Impossible Foods uses a very similar technology, which is they use yeast to reproduce this thing called heme, which they think heme is sort of the, the magic and what makes a burger a burger, meat, meat. And we were really excited about this underlying technology they were using and wondered what other applications we could use this for. Palm oil came up as a problem because one of my co-founders, Harry and I, had both seen firsthand the massively destructive externalities of the palm oil industry. So in 2013, I was in Singapore. Uh, Indonesia and Malaysia produce about 80 to 90% of the world's palm oil. So most of the production is over in Southeast Asia. And as they clear the forest, often annually, the smoke and haze comes down, shifts downward, and often into Singapore. And so I was in Singapore in 2013. The haze from the fires that year was one of the worst years on record was so bad that I was sent over with a mask to wear when I walked outside, and pregnant women were directed to not even walk outside because the pollution standard index was over 400, which was considered super toxic. So I had this sort of shocking moment around palm oil and didn't do much on it for a couple of years. But when we started thinking about ways that we could use sort of biology to solve problems, palm oil seemed like a really ripe and interesting target. How does the synthetic palm oil compare to the conflict palm oil today? Like, what is the gain in resource efficiency? How does it trickle down with respect to cost? What does this mean? What are the implications of a synthetic palm oil going forward? When we think about the products that we're making, there's sort of three important points we need to hit. One is sustainability, two is performance, and three is cost. And basically, when you're solving this problem, you kind of have to hit all three. I think that I view this as a, as a market failure. And I think, you know, my past work, I've spent time working sort of at the extreme ends of capitalism on a trading floor. And I was at the other extreme working under philanthropic funding to improve access to global health care. Two really different ways of solving problems. The palm oil problem is essentially a market failure. Everybody knows that palm oil is really bad. Over 250 companies and now actually nine countries have made public commitments to remove this conflict palm oil, palm oil that's been harvested through deforestation and burning of carbon sources. They've committed to remove it from their supply chain, but they're all failing because they don't have a viable alternative. And if they were to switch, they would either have to sacrifice performance or cost, which they don't want to do. And so the way that we approach this problem is not by sort of just hoping that people do the right thing, because unfortunately, we don't think that that will move the needle, but really by meeting people where they are. So that means producing something that looks and functions just like palm oil, that can be cost competitive, but also is a truly sustainable option. Where has the team decided to explore first? Kind of what industry area and why? When you look at palm oil, the biggest application area is by and large food. So that's everything from restaurants which use palm oil as a frying oil. So if, you, if you're getting fried food, it was most likely fried in palm oil because it's got really good melting point and reusability. So it's really functional and it's cheap. 
all the way over to sort of packaged goods. So you'll often see palm oil and things like peanut butter and Nutella because it helps create the texture that people want so that you don't have that oil separation on in peanut butter that you sometimes get at the top. So food is about 75% of palm oil usage. But food is a big market. The volumes are large that major customers use in their inputs. Prices are lower. And producers of food are fairly risk-averse, as they should be, because it's stuff that we're putting inside our bodies. Plus, there's a regulatory step. And so... When we thought about building this company and the how, how we went about releasing the technology and introducing it to markets, we looked a lot at the sort of biofuels heyday 10 10 years ago or so. So a lot of these companies were doing something similar. They were using microbes, yeast or algae, to try to make sustainable alternatives to fuel. But what was really challenging is they said, we just need $200 million. We're going to build this big plant. And once we're at scale, everyone will buy this stuff. And they spent a long time working in a vacuum without customers, trying to get to scale and trying to reach economies of scale such that the price would come down. And this was all based on a lot of assumptions. But they were targeting this really big, low-priced commodity market. And it's really hard to build a company with a fairly innovative technology that way because there's so many risk points along the way, whether it's technology risk, financing risk, you can't get more money, people don't want to fund this anymore, um, or others. And so we have taken those lessons really to heart. And so we're starting in sort of the reverse, which is the personal care market, which is somewhere between 10 and 25% of the use of palm oil globally. The volumes are much smaller. Price points are higher because the, sort of the way the economics in the industry work is people will pay up a little bit for ingredient prices because they have good margins. There's no regulatory requirements. And it's a sort of innovation-centric industry. Brands are constantly having to launch new products and tell a story about them. And clean palm oil, sustainable palm oil is a story that and consumers want and brands are hungry to tell on the front of label. So personal care is our first market. We're a B2B, so we're not going to launch our own brand. We're looking to partner with people who are already experts at distributing, knowing their customers, telling a brand story. And we want to basically enable them to do that. So we're in conversation with a handful of those brands looking to launch first product lines by this time next year. So sometime in 2020, proving out the technology case in a focused market, in a smaller focused market where we have confidence that we can win but keeping our eye on the bigger narrative, which is, which is really about global food production. How will C16 integrate into the supply chain for these companies? We realize that there's this really big infrastructure that's already built. And the more that we can just plug into that directly, the more likely we will be able to succeed. As we scale up, we want to, again, exist within the sort of current infrastructure as much as possible because it reduces the number of things we're trying to solve. And I think that's another important thing is we are working with a new technology and making sure that that works is a lot of the challenge. And so one of the things that we try to do is prevent the need to reinvent the wheel at every stage of how we're building the company. I was telling my girlfriend about the interview today and yesterday, we just looked at all of the products in our bathroom, the shampoos, the creams, close to 100% had some, and it it doesn't always say palm oil. Right. 
you know, masquerades itself in these, you know, different permutations. But now that her and I and the kind of broader base of customers starts to become aware of what palm oil means, this is a no-brainer. This is a slam dunk for any CPG company that has a pulse on what their customers want now and broadly speaking will want. Two years ago, people thought we were crazy. People still think we're crazy. People still think there's there's no way. We've seen a lot of other successful movements in the space that are generating or driven by an ethos of consumers, which is I don't want to support these types of decisions, right? And so we're seeing this with Loop, which TerraCycle just launched, reducing sort of use of single-use plastics. That sort of lifted awareness, I think, makes people not think that what we're trying to do is so crazy and understand that, yeah, if you can provide this, maybe it is a no-brainer. Coming up in just a minute, Shara talks about why clean tech is set to succeed this time around and why it failed just a couple years ago. But before we get there, I am so excited to introduce you to this season's sponsor, Bite Toothpaste Bits. So Bite is this totally new take on toothpaste. It's free of harsh chemicals, preservatives, and most importantly, plastic. So instead of the sticky paste and plastic tubes that linger in landfills, you pop a tablet in your mouth, bite down, and start brushing. It foams up just like your regular mint toothpaste. And quite frankly, it's the first time I've ever looked forward to brushing my teeth. I, I know I sound crazy, but Bite makes brushing your teeth super satisfying. And I get to do my part in reducing the billion plastic tubes that end up in landfills every year. And here's the cherry on top. So Bite has never extended a discount on their product before until today. For the first time, Byte is offering listeners of this show an exclusive offer on your first four-month subscription. So if you go to bitetoothpastebits.com, you use the code INGOODHANDS, you'll get $5 off plus free shipping. So that's code INGOODHANDS and see why thousands of customers rate Byte five stars. Again, I love my Bite toothpaste. They eliminate plastic waste. They use all natural clean ingredients. They don't leave any of that sticky goop all over my bathroom counter. And seriously, we brush our teeth at least twice a day every day, right? We're gonna need toothpaste. So why not choose a cleaner, all natural alternative that's just as effective, if not more, and fun to use? So go to bitetoothpastebits.com. You can use our code in good hands and let us know what you think. Now back to the episode. Why do you think that the kind of clean tech boom and bust, like why did it bust several years ago? Like what was the core change from then to now? So I think there's a few, a few things. So the first thing is using new technology to solve complex problems is really hard. And I mean, I deal with this every day. It's like, not only do I have a technology where I have to try to figure out how do I get more customers, right? How do I grow my customer base? There are no clear business models in the space. There's no clear path to defensibility. There's not an IP infrastructure like you have in sort of drug development where it's really clear, discover a new molecule, file a patent, 
some big pharma company will then, you know, buy it and monetize it. Yeah, that doesn't exist. And so you see companies, so in our space, which is sort of using biology to make better products, you see people pursuing direct-to-consumer brands. You see people pursuing pursuing partnerships. Um, you see all sorts of funding models. And so there's so many questions beyond just technology customer that it's really hard. And I think that when you're solving these big chewy problems. The first generation makes a lot of progress, but they often can't get all the way there because, you know, they they learn, but maybe the lessons take too long. And so when you have this second generation of companies like we're seeing today, we get to benefit from all of those learnings. So we stand on the shoulders of all of the work that they did. Second, from a macro level, we're sort of hitting this point of no return with Paris Agreement and more sort of urgency. I know that Whole Foods, for example, is looking at palm oil uh, as something that they don't want in their ingredients in their in their stores. Legislative, we talked about. So the EU has started making progress toward potentially banning importation of palm oil for use mostly in biofuels, which has really initiated almost a trade war between Malaysia and Indonesia and the EU, and really inflamed tensions. And then, you know, investors play an interesting role too. So last year, a group of investors who represent almost $6 trillion of assets wrote to this organization. It's called the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil. And basically said, you guys need to get your act together. We represent $6 trillion in assets that we have invested in many companies, most of whom have exposure to palm oil, and you don't have strict standards and you don't have enforcement, and there is a ton of risk on the line, and we're not okay with it. So we're starting to see pressure from multiple levers, which again, I think is is starting to drive this change. But with these systems level problems and market failures, I think you have to have it from all sides. And then I think the third thing is with technology, the speed at which we learn accelerates monthly. We learn new things every month. We learn new things about new organisms, tools to be able to sort of engineer them. And so I think that some combination of being able to have learned from the first generation, strong macro tailwinds, which have translated into these legislative pressures and pressure from retailers, and then the speed of the technology just increasing, which enables you to do more things than you used to be able to do. How will your team think about impact and measuring it as you engage with these you know, conglomerate, CPGs, some smaller suppliers, and everyone in between? The first one is stopping the burning of rainforest, which drives CO2 emissions. So this deforestation drives 10% of annual greenhouse gas emissions, which is the equivalent of burning 300 football fields worth of forest every single hour. So this is the obvious one. And greenhouse gas emission reduction is sort of the, the most important sort of non-financial metric that we're, that we're going for. All right, Chair, I'd like to move into my favorite part of every interview. It's the lightning round. I'll ask a couple questions. We'll try to answer them in 60 seconds or less. Ready to go? Yep. I noticed on your LinkedIn that you are an MBA alum. When... Is it right or when does it make sense for someone to pursue an MBA versus not? Generally, I say that MBAs are great. They're best if you have sort of a clear 
vision of what you want to get out of it. So for me, that was, I had been working largely in global healthcare and health supply chains and drug access. And I loved that work, but I sort of looked at the US and realized, you know, 17% of GDP, our healthcare system is really broken. This is something that I want to get involved in. And again, switching from that sort of public to private. That was my goal with this sort of subset that I was interested in, which was why is it so damn hard to commercialize cool, innovative science that's coming out of academic labs? And that small fraction of that question that I was interested in was not my sort of career ambition, but that was how I ended up at the Media Lab. And that was how I met my co-founders. And that was how we started C16. Um, you made this super interesting leap from finance and Goldman Sachs to Clinton's Global Health Access Initiative. What motivated that career shift? That was another time people thought I was crazy. I took a 60% pay cut and my mother basically cried when I told her I was leaving. And my first trip was to Nairobi. That week when I was in Nairobi was when Al-Shabaab attacked the Westgate Mall in uh, Nairobi and uh, killed 63 people, including one of my colleagues. So it was like a pretty scary jump in multiple ways. But for me, it came down to I loved Goldman. I loved everything about my job there. The people, I thought it's a great company. I loved sort of working in markets makes you, you have to know, you have to be engaged with the world. But I didn't fundamentally care about the sort of underlying thing I was doing working on a trading floor. And so I spent about a year asking myself if that mattered. Maybe I just have a great job and great life and that's what I want. But it turns out that the content of my work did matter. And so I spent a long time thinking about what that was, and I kept coming back to healthcare. My next question was about your work with UN's special envoy on health and malaria. Maybe can you just give a nugget about what exactly that was, and then is there a particular moment you're most proud of? What I worked on specifically there was this concept of uh, health workers called community health workers, which is a topic that's sort of started with the barefoot doctors in China. It's been a way to really make sure that people at the last mile are actually able to get care when you can't get to a health facility. How do we make sure that you can have care too? And understanding the social determinants of health in particular. And it's starting to pick up in the US too, which I think is super exciting. And what I loved about that work is two things. One, meeting people where they are to give them healthcare, not mandating that people have to find their way to the right health facility or go to the wrong health facility as we have here in the US and end up spending tons of money without actually getting good care. And two, it was also an economic driver. So this sort of work, community building for these people. So three things. The third thing is the way that we approach the problem was really sort of at this systems level. How can we not just work you know, building an interesting NGO that can't scale, but really, really drive change through these sort of systematic levers. And so I think that work is still ongoing. They're doing, they're doing a great job. It's sort of not one of the more popular areas of healthcare because people love to talk about disease areas, malaria, HIV. But it's starting, I think, uh, it's sort of this horizontal layer that touches everything. And it's getting the attention of the WHO recently, which was something we were really proud of. The last question of lightning around, my favorite one. Who has had the greatest impact on your learning and why? Definitely my father. He was an academic research scientist and he was a first generation immigrant here. So he grew up in Kashmir 
which now is sort of disputed territory between India and Pakistan. He left and he came over to the U.S. to pursue his master's in PhD in neuropharmacology. He came with one suitcase. He met my mom, who was a sixth-generation Texan, and did some really interesting work. Now, my sort of given his background, my dad was always really tough on me. And I think, you know, as... As a young girl raised in this wonderful country, you know, I felt like my parents, why are you being so hard on me? Or I got a 98 on this test. Why is that not enough? And he always pushed me to get 100. And so I think that, so he passed when I was in college, but he always pushed me to, I think, like be the best version of myself. And I think that I often had a a tendency to, to optimize And he really pushed me toward excellence. And don't just optimize, but push it. Learn as much as you can. Always be curious, open, go broad. And that has served me really, really well. Even though I really resented it when I was growing up, I think it's laid really, really strong foundations for how I think about problem solving and how I'm able to work in a field that I don't have expertise in. Well, to Mr. Tiku, I would say things panned out pretty darn well. I think I think he I think he would think that what we're working on is is pretty cool. Well, Cher, thank you so much. I I want to kind of lay out the red carpet for you. Is there any last plug you want to leave with our listeners? How can they find you or hear about you? Any last comment? Yeah, I mean, I think the best thing I would ask is raising awareness of the palm oil problem. It's still, like you said, people know about it, but it's still hidden a little bit. And so the more that people can start to educate themselves and their peers, I think the better. So we want to really lay that foundation of awareness and of demand for change as we start looking to being able to really solve the problem by providing an actual solution in the next year or so. So that's it. And um, we've got a website. It's it's uh, intentionally vague, but you can you can shoot me an email there on the on the site um, if you want to. This was amazing. Thank you so much. Thanks a Sarah. bunch, Peter. C sixteen in the house. Such a pleasure talking with Shara on this week's episode. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Shara. Sincere thanks to all of you for giving us a little bit of your time today. Seriously, it really does mean a lot to us. If you enjoyed, please consider subscribing and writing us a review. And huge shout out to Byte for sponsoring this season of In Good Hands. And last but not least, special thanks to Lucas Arndt and Dan Mahoney, who produced this week's episode, and to Eddie Knuckles, who created our outro music. I'm your host, Peter Levin. And if you'd like to recommend a guest, sponsor an episode, or help spread the message, you can find us on social at InGoodHands or our website, InGoodHands.us. Again, huge, huge thanks to all of you for your support. We really do appreciate it and can't wait to bring you another new episode next Tuesday.